What's up, guys? Josh here. On today's bonus episode, we're going to be hearing from Mike Linstead. Mike is the president and co-founder of the Nehemiah Project, along with our co-host, Chad Wiles. Mike has an incredible story of redemption and freedom from a life of alcohol and drug addiction to the point of being homeless under a bridge. He's now living on mission for the Lord and attempting to serve that population through this recovery ministry. So please listen to his story, and then you can always check out their information in the show notes below. Hey guys, welcome to the Change Up Podcast. Josh and Chad here. This is where we talk about culturally relevant topics, but we look at them through an honest gospel worldview. Let's get it. All right, what's up, guys? Today we are recording a bonus episode. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you notice, don't look at the camera, but everybody look at the camera. We are also recording video. That's right. But hopefully, it matches up with our voices. New feature. It is a new feature. I think feature. people are going to be surprised to see the face behind the voices. Ooh, okay. yeah. We Maybe have, a little disappointed. Yeah, we have faces Definitely. for radio for sure. <laughs> yeah, I've been told that before. Yeah. All right. Well, today's topic is addiction. Mm-hmm. All types of addiction. I like something you you called it as life dominating events or life dominating issues. issues yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why don't you just let's just start this off. What are some major life dominating issues that you're referring to? Man, there's a, there's so many kind so many kinds of that, and Mike can jump in. But anything from any sort of addiction, uh, whether it be drugs, alcohol, could be could be food, could be TV. Uh, anything that you're addicted to that that you that you find your your worth in or you find like that that is what I'm going to for satisfaction that's what I'm going to for life for hope for whatever yeah um, could be that some people feel like anxieties and depressions and stuff can be life dominating as well hmm. what do you think Mike yeah I think the life dominating issues <clears throat> can be described pretty succinctly by like what your God is, you know, like you said, what you mm-hmm. run to when th- when times get hard. And mm-hmm. um, I think anxiety and depression are more so the kind of byproducts of yeah. not trusting in God. Um, and certainly they're damaging and they can dominate your life. But mm-hmm. um, I think really, like I can speak from my own experience, it was definitely what I ran to the most uh, when I had free time, when, t- when life got hard, you know, you name it. Right. Um, it was definitely whatever I put in that place of God. Absolutely. I'd love to start out with just hearing your story. Yeah. You shared it to me once we were doing like a five-mile run or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was a quick little five-miler. Yeah, just a quick yeah. little <laughs> out and back, you know? <laughs> right. And I know you yard. share like parts of it a lot, um, especially mm-hmm. with what you two uh, are building right now, which we'll obviously get to that uh, mm-hmm. later on in the podcast. But I think it'd be great to hear from you and just your story and you know where you're coming at from this, you know, this world of addiction. Yeah. So, um, you know, I didn't grow up in Mandeville, Louisiana. I grew up in California, kind of all over the central coast of California. And I was born in LA. And um, my story really starts when my parents divorced, you know. Um, my parents split up when I was two. My dad was what we would call a functioning alcoholic and addict, mm-hmm. um, able to maintain a, a business, a job, um, look successful on the outside, but was 
you know, severely addicted to, to alcohol and cocaine, really. Um, and so my mom, you know, she wanted a man that was going to raise me, not a guy who was, you know, preoccupied. <clears throat> so my parents split up because of that. And um, for whatever reason, I internalized it and thought it was my fault. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my parents never said that. They never said it was my fault. Had nothing to do with me. But um, I know now, looking back on it, that definitely Satan whispered that lie into my ear like, you're the problem. You're the reason. Yeah. And I even have, you know, I, I can remember my mom telling me like, cause I would say, mom, is it because of me that dad's leaving? And she would say, no, it's not because of you. And I was a two year old, so she wasn't going to tell me, <laughs> nor could I even understand, you know, but that's really where my identity was shifted mm. to I'm the problem, you know, like, right. you know, um, so yeah, I carried that identity throughout my entire life and you know, it, it manifested in different ways. It manifested in um, really self-destructive behavior. Um, you know, a story from my grade school. <laughs> Actually, I don't think I've told you this before. Yeah. So I went to this um, private, uh, L- like kindergarten school in Los Angeles, and uh, I got kicked out of that school because I was telling, <laughs> I was telling kids on the on the playground that if they paid me one cent every day, I wouldn't beat them up, and <laughs> I would make sure no one else beat them up. But if they didn't pay me, I would beat them up. So you're like the, so you're I, like the playground mafia. He's yeah. a profiteering bulldog or a sheepdog. I, I learned quickly that's called extortion. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, self-destructive behavior, you know what I mean? And, and, you know, I have other stories where they grade your behavior on a yellow or a green, yellow, and red card system. And I just made it a point to get a red card every day. So I was that kid. You know okay, what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I was that kid. I figured, hey, well, if I'm the problem, then let's live that out to its fullest potential, you mm. know? And so that carried on all the way really to um, uh, high school where my mom started dating another guy. His name was Michael and he was a Christian and um, mm. I didn't grow up as a Christian. Um, it's kind of funny because I, I did go to church early on, but my, my grandmother is from Lebanon and uh, from a little village called Kesab and, um, and she's Armenian. So we were going to like the Eastern Orthodox Armenian church in mm. Los Angeles and like, I didn't want anything to do with that. That mm-hmm. was like super gnarly, super like workspace. And my mom certainly didn't have any interest in doing that either. So fast yeah. forward to high school, she met a guy named Michael and he was a Christian and uh, Michael really introduced Christ to our family. Mm. And so, you know, I was a rebellious little skateboarder, punk kid, you mm-hmm. know, and, um, I can see that, you know, for sure. Um, <laughs> I love, I still like punk rock music, but that's for another conversation. <laughs> but, um, so you know, as a result of meeting a, my mom dating a Christian, we had to start yeah. going to church. And I started going to the youth group scene. And really, the, I, we were living in this little town called Lompoc, California. There's like two things there. Besides the two high schools, there's a, a maximum security prison and Vandenberg Air Force Base. And it's a really small farm town um, located just north of Santa Barbara. And the only reason I like going to church was because they had like skateboard ramps there. Mm. and like a lot of cute girls so i was like stoked you know yeah. as you're a, probably not alone in that right yeah. as an unsaved 14 year old boy yeah. you know what i mean sure. i was stoked so um that's kind of where i where i got introduced to to jesus christ and and uh the gospel and things like that but definitely there was not a heavy preaching like on sin um it was part of the foursquare ministry so i heard a lot about grace and things like that but didn't really understand it nor did i really care to i was just kind of doing the social click social club thing mm-hmm. um uh, so I, but I can describe like my high school years as blessed because, you know, I was, I was around God, right. I was around the people of God. Mm-hmm. Um, my identity was starting to shift into, Hey, well, like I'm a Christian. I gave my life to Christ. You know, I, I did get baptized at 16 and I, and I was actually really involved with my church. Um, at the same time I started playing football, which like, I was like this anti sport kid, but I was getting in trouble all the time. So my mm-hmm. mom was like, 
dude, you're going to play a sport when you go to high school. Mm -hmm. And she said I could choose it. So I didn't want to swim or play golf or baseball or anything like that. So I chose football and football introduced like this whole element of uh, discipline into my life um, that was totally foreign to me. Um, and that, so that, that started to shape my identity into, Hey, I, now I'm like a Christian football player. So from 14 to 18, like I can really describe my life as blessed. You know, it was, it was a good time in my life for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even start like thinking about drinking until I was done with football my senior year. And I actually have a newspaper article where mm-hmm. I'm quoted saying like football saved my life. Like if it wasn't for football, I'd probably be in jail or would have ended up a drug addict. And sure enough, when football ended, wow. you know, um, mm-hmm. I, I kind of went down that path and, uh, I looked older. That was in a newspaper article. Yeah. I got it right there on my phone. If that you want to see awesome. it. Yeah. It's a trip. It's like prophetic, Dang. but, uh, I looked older, you know, so I was able to go buy alcohol and stuff for parties. And so that kind of like, again, shifted my identity as like, Oh, I have, wait, what was the, the introduction into alcohol? Yeah. So like when football was over, you know, there's high school parties going on and stuff. Yeah. And, and previously while I was playing football, I was like really good at it. And I knew that, well, if I did that, not only was I going to be doing the things my dad was doing, <clears throat> but it's not going to help me in football, you know? So I just kind of, it had no appeal to me. And when football's over, I've got like all this free time and right. I'm about to go to college. And, you know, like everyone knows, like in college, you are probably going to party pretty hard. So I just figured I'll start now, you know? Mm. So I went to like a high school party, um, drank a little bit of vodka and I, it was just like this rush of relief that went over me, you know? And I was just like, oh, this is what I've been missing, you know? Uh-huh. And so, yeah, I drank like the whole bottle that night and yeah. we we're off and running. So in college, that's so where this was not like you trying to fix a problem. This was just your personality yeah. being introduced to alcohol. And it was like the perfect yeah. synergistic. Well, mix. Like you said, you, you began life with this belief of, of being worthless, right? Or what, how'd you say it? I'm the problem. You're the problem. Which mm-hmm. football kind of stuffed that down for a few years. Yeah, football, you know, it allowed it, it put me into some discipline. And then it also really allowed me to get a lot of aggression out, you know, with the yeah. weightlifting and hitting people and stuff like that. So I really enjoyed that aspect of, of football, especially the weightlifting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, yeah, I was able to kind of get that aggression yeah. out. But I think the important point to pull up about addiction is most people don't, become addicted just because of the substance itself there's usually something underneath that drove someone to that as an option for Mm -hmm. relief yeah because there's some sort of deep-rooted belief false belief about worthlessness or being the problem or feeling inadequate in some way and looking for escape and then there's the social aspect of hey there's acceptance in this world too and then but then the problem with that is because we all do that look for idols but mm-hmm. sometimes we don't look at it, look for it in such destructive ways. But sometimes we find it in addiction. And the problem is substances have their own addictions tied to them as well. So now I'm looking for hope in something, and that's driving idolatry. And then I find it in something that has physical properties that are also going to cause me physically to be addicted. So right. you're saying we become addicted to the help, whatever the help may be. Some For some, let's just say it's success. Well, we're looking for identity, looking for hope in something. Right? We become addicted to that. Well, the yeah, looking for that drives us to find our hope in something other than God. Yeah, which is called an idol, right? Right. And some idols are in the form are actually of, addicting, are addictive. But what I was getting at is like it's physically. also addicting to like if you find an idol that sure. is success, you're addicted to success. Sure, so for sure. It doesn't have physical addicting properties, right? And I guess you could argue that like the dopamine. Of, yeah. Oh, for sure. There's definitely, but there's it's a not reason as, why you do something. Yeah. But it's not as destructive. But, yeah. Right. 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 You, you may look good, like a productive right. member of society, 
while going after right. success. But okay. then substances yeah. like alcohol or drugs have their own addictive properties physically, so then you become enslaved to it. Right. Then, it then it becomes a need. Yeah, right. I, I'll tell you about Yeah, that. so what's yeah, the yeah. next few years look like so, Yeah, for you? so college is really where um, I just dove head first into this world. So um, I moved up to San Luis Obispo, California with like 10 of my friends, and we mm. all packed in this four-bedroom house. Mm. And, dude, it was like... For my life back then, it was like, this is the coolest thing in the world. You know, I get to live with all my buddies in high school and have no (laughs) responsibility except go to work, you know. So, so we were living in this house and sharing rent and, um, I I got introduced to weed and weed was like, for me, it's never really been like something that I was super hooked on. You know, I just kind of did it because everyone else was doing it, but I knew I could make money selling it. And I've always been kind of like business oriented and, and, and just, you know, looking for ways to make more money. And, um, so I knew that, okay, well one of my roommates wanted to do the same thing. So we started doing that together Mm -hmm. and then talking about identity that now added, Oh, okay. You've got access into like this whole new realm of life that is unfamiliar to me, but Mm -hmm. a lot of people want access into that. And so I can bridge that gap and position myself very well. You know, um, I, I was extremely like manipulative and deceptive my entire life, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, so this was just another way for, me to use that skill set, you know, and, yeah. um, and make money and, and kind of get power and get prestige and all mm-hmm. the things that we really go chasing for, you know? Right. Um, and so that carried on from 19 to 22 and, and, you know, I did the full litany, you know, uh, sold all everything. And, um, and at 22 is really where my, my, my life started to take a different direction. You know, I, I kind of say that life started hitting me in the gut, you know, at 22, my dad, was uh, he went in to go get his gallbladder removed and uh, they opened him up and he had stage four inoperable stomach mm-hmm. cancer. And my dad and I had a really good relationship. Like my parents split up, but they probably had the best relationship that two divorced parents could have. I saw mm-hmm. my dad every weekend. Mm-hmm. My mom, you know, like I've, I've come to find out later as I've gotten older, my mom's kind of shared more about this story. You know, my mom and, and my dad, like, you know, they, they tried to, to work it out, but ultimately like my dad needed to go to Alcoholics Anonymous all the time. And yeah. like my mom didn't want that, you know, she didn't yeah. want a guy that had to always be there. So anyways, all that to say is that when my dad got diagnosed with stomach cancer, I was like, uh, you know, but not only that, his sister, my aunt mm-hmm. also got diagnosed with it. And so the doctors were like, all right, let's do some genetic testing here. Um, so they did genetic testing on everyone on my dad's side of the family that cared to have it done. Mm-hmm. And it turns out like seven people, including myself, had this gene that predisposed us to right. stomach cancer. It's called CDH1. There's actually some people in Mandeville here that have that gene. And it's crazy how like God has put us together and, and I've been able to, it, that's a whole nother podcast. Wow. But anyway, so um, we did some endoscopies on me and it found out that I had stomach cancer growing already in the lining of my stomach. I was 22 years old. Wow. I was playing rugby at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. I was a manager at my job. I was selling everything I get my hands on. I was going to school. Like I was doing You were every, high functioning. I was a high functioning, yeah, alcoholic yeah. addict. And um, and I was like, what are you talking about? I have cancer. I'm 22. Like that's for yeah. people that are 50 and 60, you know, a typical response. And it turns out I did. So the um, I had two choices, basically. I could either right. choose to kind of wait it out and hope it didn't develop and go through chemotherapy. And I was like, I'm not doing that. I just watched my dad yeah. go through that whole thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, that didn't work for him because he ended up passing away about a year after he got diagnosed. Um, The other option was to have what's called a complete gastrectomy, which is the full removal of the stomach. And they connect the esophagus to the small intestine. And I was like, well, uh, that's my only other option. Let's go ahead and do it. So I had my whole stomach removed. Um, 
On top of that, I mean, that was that's enough to wreck your world right there. But on top of that, my grandmother and my grandfather both died. And um, I was going off to college. And so it was just all this change was happening. And I didn't know how to handle it. And my God was drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what, dude, when I was getting hit in the gut by, by life, I just ran to that so hard. Like I remember the day I watched my dad die. I was in a band and we had our, our first show that night. And the girl that I was dating, I mean, I literally watched him die on the table. I watched mm-hmm. him go from life to death. And I was just totally stone cold. You know what I mean? Like had no emotional reaction. I didn't express any, you know, I was a stuffer. I stuffed all my emotions. And I remember the girl I was dating at the time, like we were talking later on after the show. And like, you think I'd be like super stoked, like just played my first show, you know? And like, that was a big um, priority of mine at the time, like music and playing music. And I was not stoked at all. I was not excited. She said, you want to drink, huh? And I was like, yeah. And from that night, Basically, I started drinking a fifth every night and, and just it progressed worse from from 22 mm. years old to 25. My life becomes a basic, you know, typical addict alcoholic story, like burning all my bridges with my friends and my family, dropping out of school, going through multiple jobs, in and out of rehabs, in and out of jail, in and out of mental. I mean, I, I've been 51, 50, like that's a 72 hour hold in a psychiatric facility. I mean, I've done it all, you know, um, and I don't know how I'm still walking around, you know, right. at, at that point, you know, in my life, I have no clue because God is not in my life. Like, at least I'm not acknowledging God in my life. Mm-hmm. And um, at 25, I find myself physically addicted, like Chad had mentioned, mm-hmm. physically addicted to the point where I was having epileptic seizures. If I didn't drink like a pint of vodka first thing in the morning, I was prescribed over eight different psychotropic and narcotic medications, everything. I was diagnosed as depressive, you know, manic depressive, bipolar, ADHD. Mm. You just go down the line. I, and I had all the narcotic drugs that people want nowadays, and but I was hooked on them, you know. And, and then Why I was, were they throwing all these diagnoses at you? Well, you know. Because um, they're obviously not true now. I think I think Chad alluded to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they, the psychiatrists, they, see, they look at behavior. And then they look at the underlying causes of behavior and they've, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'm not speaking like an authority on the subject, but I have some friends that are, you know, PhD level psychologists. And, you know, basically what I gather from them is they they look at behavior and they try to find the underlying root cause. And then their approach is is physical. They're going to go, all right, well, we're going to treat the physiological um, symptoms, like so the chemical imbalances and things like that. And so, I mean, once I got diagnosed with depression, that was the first one. Then I just kept going to psychiatrists and say, hey, I'm feeling anxious. Well, so here you go. Here's that. Oh, right. so, you, so you were manipulating the system. Yeah, but it wasn't even like because I just wanted the drugs. It was like I'm like really having problems. You know, right. what I mean? like I'm really having problems. Like I, I can't even control my emotions anymore. Right. I mean, I was – dude, I, I mean, we can get down into some serious stuff. But I was in my, my uh, room when I was going to college in Monterey for three days. I didn't come out of my room for three days. And I called um, a girl that – I, I knew from high school and uh, she was going to school for psychology and I was just talking to her, like telling her mm-hmm. what I was going through. And I was like, do you think I should go see a, a shrink? You know? And she's like, yeah, Michael, you need to go get help, dude. Like you haven't eaten in three days. You yeah. haven't left your room in three days. You've been drinking insane amounts. Like, mm-hmm. dude, you're jacked up, you know? And, um, so yeah, it started with that diagnosis of depression and then it, it, that's just, oh, I go to the doctor and I tell them they're my hope, you know? Mm-hmm. And so at 25, I found myself homeless mm-hmm. in that condition that I just had kind of gone through mm-hmm. um, and totally without hope. I mean, I, I'll say this. I remember, I remember the feeling of hopelessness setting onto me 
and it was so it was so intense, dude. I was I was walking down the street in, in San Luis Obispo. It's called Broad Street, and I was leaving that bridge I used to sleep under because I used to go downtown and look for money that people would drop on the ground. Like I found I found like 130 bucks rolled up one time, and so I would go at closing closing time and and just try to find money, you know. And I remember I was walking down the street. It was like two miles long. And there was a bar on the right-hand side of the street, and I was on the opposite side of the street, kind of like in the shadows and just walking. And I can hear people laughing and having a good time, you know, doing mm-hmm. doing what the world does. And I, I just thought to myself, man, they have got somewhere to go tonight. <laughs> Here I am sleeping under a bridge, dude. You know, like what is going on with my life? And and I just felt that feeling of absolute hopelessness. Like mm-hmm. you are you are now on the outskirts of society, dude. You are done. Was right. suicide an option? No, for me, I, um, my, I guess you could, you could probably categorize it as like, mm-hmm. I have suicidal tendencies, but I never told anybody I wanted to kill myself, right. but I lived like I wanted to die. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I didn't go around saying like, like passive, mm-hmm. you weren't going to make it happen, but you're I was, okay with it. Happening. I was drinking and taking things to where it should have happened. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason I should be even be, mm-hmm. you know, walking around talking right now. I've had doctors right. tell me that, you know? Yeah. So, well, and I think that's the, the, <clears throat> There's a lot of flaws in the chemical imbalance theory, but one of that has not ever been a proven theory. But on top of that, if you're only looking at behaviors and then trying to assess what's the underlying root causes, and the, my only option is to give you more medication, I'm never really dealing with any of the belief mm-hmm. that's behind. That's because what people don't realize is just how powerful our belief really is. Like God gave us brains, right. and our belief really drives everything, and so. We know, and we can kind of get into the the Nehemiah project now, because one of the things that Mike and I um, really feel is people with addictive issues are starting down a path towards that because of some other idolatry or some trying to trying to find hope in some way, and then they get into drugs and alcohol or whatever, and then it becomes addictive in itself. Yeah, but the path out isn't isn't more chemicals the path out is finding a hope that they look for in the first place which is can only be found in christ yeah and once we find that hope and we're able to walk in that hope the desire for another hope will go away but you also have to have a time period where someone's helping you keep keep the desire away right right right, high accountability absolutely um because the addictive properties of the drugs themselves right and that's where um, a recovery program comes in. Yeah. Um, and ours is holistic. We want ours to be holistic and helping the entire man, physically, emotionally, spiritually, yeah. as well as we believe that every man is created by God for a purpose. And we don't want to just help the man get sober or the woman, but we want to help them renew their life yeah. and live out the purpose that God's created for them. We hope that out of the Nehemiah Project comes future business owners future missionaries, future pastors, future school teachers, future whatever, yeah. fill in the blank. Because we know that, that every man and woman is created in God's image. Mm-hmm. And so they're not worthless, although society, because of the criminal, the criminal rap that comes with the addiction, usually doing criminal activity, yeah. and all, that, all those things, plus the label of being an addict, doesn't really give you a whole lot of hope in our society as far as employment or as far as right. future right and, and you know what just on that note it's it's not as if society's dealing you a bad hand like all the things all the labels that i got from from um my my choices like mm-hmm. those were my choices like this right. society is rightly labeling you that sure. way that's right but 
they make it so impossible and so so difficult for you to get back mm-hmm. into society. That's where the issue lies. But right. at the time, would you say you were a victim to your mental illnesses? No, not at all. Oh, you, I, I you ne- knew better. I have never personally held that stance. But you knew better at the time? is that Because you had doctors telling you you were mentally ill. This is why you're having an issue. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I don't know. Like, I know people have that victim mindset. I've never had that mindset. I basically lived my entire old life that I know the consequences of what I'm probably about, like what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to take them if they come. Even as you had doctors slipping you medications because you're schizophrenic, bipolar, depressed, you're still not even using that as, as a crutch. No, I never you're did. Saying you still felt like you had control. You just wanted to destroy your life. Yeah. I, I, you know, like saying I had control, what, I, I, I know that I lost control because there's one thing that, right. that we have to say about um, chemicals. And right. drug addiction is that your brain will physically be rewire itself yeah, to sure. to need those chemicals, and the mm-hmm. ability to control the urges will go away. I mean, we, right. we've seen this in 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 the, the scientific mm-hmm. studies that have been done on addicts mm-hmm. and alcoholics. So, the 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 desire, those urges, at some point you do lose right. control. control. Now, what control? How we define control may, may be up for discussion, but. I could tell you this, man. It was a no-brainer. I woke up, boom, went to the bottle. Yeah. Boom, went to the bottle. Yeah. So boom, you were aware the of the choices you're making. Right. I didn't see any other choice to make, though. But uh, right. right, but we do know that, makes that sense. we also know now scientifically it's been proven that it used to be believed. The reason why the chemical imbalance theory came about was because they didn't think the brain had neuroplasticity, meaning mm-hmm. like that it could grow and change. Like you, you had what you had from birth. Okay, can we clarify our chemical imbalance theory? The theory is... You're supposed to have the right amount of chemicals, serotonin, different things to function properly. Right. And if you're not functioning properly, the the thought is there must be something off chemically. This is where you get like uh, bipolar, schizophrenic, depressed. What I'm not saying is that I that I don't believe it's a possibility. What I'm saying is it's never been proven. Right. No one's ever tested the brain or tested someone's healthy brain to someone that had a chemical imbalance to see the different chemicals. Like it's just hasn't been done yet technology's not there but um but what we do know that happens is uh, when you start putting in false chemicals to replace like serotonins and stuff then the brain will stop producing its own as yeah. well but what they have discovered is that the brain does produce new neurons and new things every day and it is uh has a neuroplasticity meaning it's moldable, meaning new habits it's can redeemable. Form, new things can happen. Yes. Exactly. Like That's that. a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. It is redeemable. Absolutely. Absolutely redeemable. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's intro, because right now we're at the lowest point in your story, so we definitely yeah. got to get gotta some come out of redemption in that. Let's do it through the explanation of the Nehemiah Project. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe you can do it in a way that shows what, because I know you went through the Dream Center in L.A. Yeah. Right. So just explain through the Nehemiah Project how that would help you and other, you know, Right. Whatever you feel yeah, that you share, want to share. But. Yeah, kind of share the mission and vision. Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, one of the one of the, the foundational beliefs that the Nehemiah Project holds is that men and women are created in the image of God. Therefore, all their problems and solutions are theological in nature. Mm-hmm. That's a driving force behind this. And uh, that's actually a quote from A.W. Tozer, but I think it puts it succinctly enough. Right. Um, how an individual views God or whatever that individual views as God mm-hmm. is going to contribute to the quality of their life. Mm, that's good. And so, um, and then that's certainly my case. And so, like you mentioned, I went to a place called the Dream Center in Los Angeles. And, and at the Dream Center, I saw kind of a balanced recovery program that was faith-based, meaning that they provided for all your physical needs, um, you know, roof over your head, clothes, bed to sleep on, food, and a job. 
Mm-hmm. It's something to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I had been to a lot of recovery centers that you sat around did like art therapy and meditation. And I mean, I, I'm not knocking any of that stuff, but mm-hmm. look, God also gave mankind work in the Garden of Eden. Why did he give mankind work to do when he was already like in heaven, you know, or like in, in uh, paradise? Mm-hmm. Well, it gives us dignity. It gives us some another way to glorify God. And, and um, I mean, now it provides a financial, um, it provides financial stability for our lives, which you know, mm-hmm. just knowing that you have stability can help provide hope, you know, and, right. and, and other things. So I saw all that working at the Dream Center and uh, I was at that place for about three years. So I had a, I, I was able to see the the how it worked on a structural organizational level, you know, how the money came in, what, how they dispersed it, what it takes in, in terms of a leadership structure to run an organization that had, I mean, that's a 400,000 square foot facility and, and they had anywhere from 650 to 1,000 people living on the campus year round at any, mm-hmm. at any given time. Wow. I mean, it's a big organization and it's also an international organization now. But so when I started, when I, when I moved to Mandeville and um, this mm-hmm. girl named Mandy got me to move to Mandeville, who's my <laughs> wife. <laughs> who you met. Um, who I met at the Dream Center. Right. Um, and she, but she was helping. Not... She went there to volunteer. Yeah, she, Mandy, uh, Mandy and I, couldn't have been we, we grew up completely differently you know what I mean um, and God brought us together and she is just an expression of God's grace in my life there's absolutely no reason why Mandy should be my wife um, but God is good and, and I'll take it so <laughs> yeah. so when I moved here I started going to the field church um, I love the field church you know uh, I, I, I was also going to John MacArthur's church in LA and so um, you know having a place w- in Mandeville that was was doing expository preaching was super important mm-hmm. to me. Um, cause I, I don't want sugar anymore. I want some meat. I want to, I want to get into the word. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, and so I don't That's want, spir- do here. I don't want yeah. spiritual diabetes, dude. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so anyways, uh, moved here and started getting discipled by Chad, uh, about two years in. Um, mm-hmm. and I actually approached Chad. I was just like, you know, because initially I was getting discipled by Sam and we had a great time and his schedule was getting super busy. And I was like, you know what, dude, like, I know there's probably a bigger need with some other people like, go ahead, bro. You know, and, and, and he, and he said, all right, cool. So, um, so I, I asked Chad about a year after Sam and I stopped meeting to, uh, just disciple me. And mm-hmm. not that I was struggling with anything necessarily. I just, I, I, I crave that. I want, right. I want, I want someone that I allow to be over me in that, in that spiritual sense. And so mm-hmm. we started sharing just our lives with each other and kind of like our vision for like where God you know, is, is taking us individually and, and, you know, what our passions are. And, and this idea of like a recovery center came up and, um, mm-hmm. out of that, you know, I, I shared with him, I was like, dude, I, I know exactly how to get one of these things going. Like I know how to run one of these things just from personal experience, you right. know? And, um, about a year prior to, to me and Chad meeting up, I had started my own business. So I started to learn how to get a business going, you know? And so I brought that to the table, so to speak, um, with this Nehemiah project idea and Chad brings mm-hmm. all of his expertise in the biblical counseling, which is so necessary, um, to, ad- to address the spiritual issues. Mm-hmm. And so, um, really it just birthed out of us meeting up together. And, and when God broke my heart and, and really sort of thrust me in this direction to have this recovery center was when a friend of mine, um, his name's Sean, um, he had, he had, he and I had developed a discipleship, discipleship type of a relationship. And, um, about a month and a half after me and him uh, started meeting, he uh, overdosed on heroin. And um, mm. that was like the third guy since I've been in Mandeville that I've known um, right. either personally or through it by extension that has overdosed on heroin and fentanyl. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, God, like what the heck? Like I ha- like I have to do something. Like my heart was broken, you yeah. know, just like when Nehemiah right. heard about the conditions of Jerusalem, his heart was broken and he just prayed to God. And so that's really what thrust me into this. And then, mm-hmm. you know, Chad came into my life. We shared the vision. And I mean, it's crazy how fast this thing yeah. has just moved, you know, and I told, um, I told Mike the other day, I feel like we're on a roller coaster. It's like a lot of fun, but also we have no control over it. Yeah, <laughs> we are. And, that, and that's a good thing. You know? It's not one of those things where y'all like talked about for a long, for no. years and nothing ever happened. It's like y'all started talking about it. No, literally then... this, this summer in the month of June, I went on vacation and that's when God kind of gave me some more vision for it. And then like a month later, I shared it with Mike and here we now We're now in November and like we're in fundraising mode. Yeah, it's full. It's yeah, full it's, it's crazy to see how, how God moves. And, you know, we have this, we have the vision. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that God has really put on my heart personally, and I shared this with Chad, is funding, right? Mm-hmm. It would be so easy for us to go get a loan and just do this in our own strength. Right. Um, but that would, a first, of all, first and foremost, not honor God. And it would not show anyone else that we really have any faith that God will provide. Mm-hmm. Sure, we could we could kind of wrap it in religious religious garb and go, yeah, we're going to go get a loan and God will provide then. But dude, you know what I mean? Just yeah. just wait, wait on the Lord. And, for and, sure, um, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, right now we're really at the point where, where we're just fundraising and uh, yeah. we've got the building location sort of uh, scoped out. We're ready to, mm-hmm. you know, I think we're going to pull the trigger on that whenever the Lord provides the money. And, you know, again, we're going to wait for the Lord to provide the money. Yeah. Um, well, why don't we end? Why don't we end this way? It's a good segue. What is the Nehemiah Project? Just succinctly, our our three point mission statement, yeah. and then how can people get involved? Like, share the website, share how they can give, and and what our goals are. Absolutely. Um, so the reason why the Nehemiah Project exists is to help those who are enslaved by addiction um, be freed of that um, bondage through the gospel, through the presentation of the gospel of mm-hmm. our Lord Jesus Christ. That's number one. We got to get them the gospel. We have to get them the gospel. Right. Whether or not they receive it, that's on them. But we've got to faithfully present the gospel. Number two our, of our mission statement is that we have to disciple them in the knowledge of the truth, you know, to um, be able to help them grow into Christ likeness. Right. So our, our, the mission statement is very similar to the church's mission statement, right? But the third thing, and, and this is where it differs from the church's mission statement, is that we really want to help educate people uh, with, with job skills, mm-hmm. uh, with life skills, in financial literacy, leadership and entrepreneurial development, in marriage, in mm-hmm. nutrition, all the other things that, yes, the Bible definitely does speak to, but recovery programs in the area don't do a very good job of bringing to the table, you know, whether they're faith-based or not. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to make sure that everyone that comes through our program um, has the ability to start their own business, right? They know how to do it, uh, has the ability to go out and be great employees if they don't want to start their own business, has the ability to you know, if they're married, respect their wife and, and treat their, their wife like the Bible instructs them to. We want to make sure that they know how to take care of their bodies and their minds. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like we want to, we want to address the whole person. Yeah, you said you were going to have a gym at the, we facility? are going to have a gym. Yeah. That's a facility. That's awesome, man. Yeah. That's going to be, that's going to be great. Um, we're going to deadlift the drugs right out of you. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Um, and so, so the three point mission statement, yeah, get them the gospel, disciple them in the knowledge of truth, and then get them, get them job skills or employment opportunities. And so Mm -hmm. the way that we're going to help connect, bridge the gap, um, for those individuals to get jobs if they don't already have one is we're building a network. Um, we're building relationships with local business owners in Mandeville and the greater New Orleans area Mm -hmm. that are interested in this idea of second chance employment. And I know one of the things that was a huge roadblock for me um, you know, getting sober and, and, and all that is, yeah, I got saved, but I still had like a legal record. And, um, yeah. 
And if you have a felony on your record, man, like it's so hard to get a job. And I had a felony on my record. Mm-hmm. Um, that felony got wiped off of my record with the completion of the um, Dream Center. Wow. It was a, yeah, it was a felony DUI, so mm-hmm. they were able to drop it down to a misdemeanor. And because that's that's because they work with the judges in the courts, the Dream Center. Yeah, I, I think. I could I can't tell you exactly why that happened. I just know that that's what the judge said. If you finish this program, we'll go, we'll drop it down. Incentivize. Wow. Oh, it could have been just y- you. Yeah, but that was pretty common. It's pretty common okay. for judges to incentivize awesome. people changing their lives. You yeah, because they know like they they understand the roadblocks. They know mm-hmm. that, and it's just part of our legal system. And so, the Nehemiah Project really wants to stand in the gap and connect our participants with local business owners that are willing to have them involved. And mm-hmm. um, and I think that um. I know if I was in the program, I would be super excited just with that as a hope, right, you know, yeah. kind of at the, at the end of the road, mm-hmm. man, I might like learn all of these new job skills and actually like be able to provide for myself and my family if I have right. one. And so, so we want to really reintegrate these individuals back into society. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know that it can happen. I know that God can do it. I've seen him do it in hundreds of people's lives, not just mine. Um, and so that's the starting point for the Nehemiah project right. is an intensive outpatient program that's right. really focused on counseling and rehabilitating the whole person and getting them back into society, mm-hmm. hopefully with a job if they don't have one. Yeah. Awesome. So if you want to be involved in the EMI project, if you want to donate, uh, we're trying to raise $250,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're trying to hit the $50,000 mark before we sign the lease on our property to begin to build it out because that provides uh, retrofit costs as well as six months of rent. And so to be involved in any way, shape, or form, go to Nehemiah Project, G-N-O dot O-R-G, and uh, check us out. We'd love to, to hear from you, and we'd love to have you involved if, if at all possible. And I'll put all that in the show notes, guys, so you can find it. And we'll also, we need to do another episode, mm-hmm. a little update. Oh, yeah, shortly. for sure. So we'll do it during season two. How about that? Sounds good. All right. Thanks, all right, guys. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Hey guys, thanks for listening. Please, if you enjoyed this podcast, like and subscribe, rate and review. Five stars, please. Also, visit us on Sunday mornings here in Mandeville, Louisiana. Service time's 1015, Sunday mornings. And uh, our website is thefieldnola.com. You can find out all that information. Peace. Thanks, guys. Later. Season one is sponsored by Gospel Folk. They are the worship band of the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. Um, You can see them every Sunday. Come worship with them at the Field Church at 10... 10, 15 a.m. if you're in the area. Um, I've been one of their pastors uh, since the beginning for the past three years, and it's been awesome to watch them grow. They write music straight from Scripture, uh, which is rare, but also it's creative, it's fun, and it's just great music to listen to. So go check them out on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, You can find them at Gospel Folk or their website, gospelfolkmusic.com, or anywhere that music is streamed.